Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word tells us about who you are and also instructs us about how to live with one another and to how to live in this world that you've made for us. So Lord, as we, as we hear from you today, Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us wherever we are. Uh, Lord, if there is healing between people that needs to happen, relationships need to happen, that you would cause that to happen. There's healing between people and you, Lord, that you would cause that reconciliation to happen. And Lord, for all of us, all of us, Lord, that we would um, Lord, come to better know how to live as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, our daughter Evangeline had her fourth birthday a couple weeks ago, and it's really funny. Her whole life now is based on before four and after four. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey, Dad, do you remember that time we went to the zoo? Yeah, I do. That's when I was three. <laughs> now I'm four. You know, it's like everything's about that. Anyways, uh, a f- couple weeks before that, before her birthday, Katie and I were uh, trying to decide what to get Evangeline for her birthday, and we realized that uh, later this, this summer we have uh, a 10 or 11 hour car ride. And so we thought, you know, we can get Evangeline one of those Leapsters. It's a little, you know, handheld device, and it's educational, you know, so we can feel good about giving it to her, you know. And so we, we decided to get her a Leapster, and I, I hopped on uh, Amazon.com and uh, began looking uh, for a Leapster for Evangeline. And it was amazing that within just a few seconds, um, I was able to assimilate all of this information that was in front of me. How, how good of a leapster can I get for how little money, right? And in my mind, within seconds, I'm able to assimilate all this information on this computer screen. If I go with this option, I get a little bit more. I get a little carrying case and an extra game. But if I, I go with this, well, that's not quite the newest model, but it's not quite as expensive. And I think Evangeline would like this color more. And all of these things just happened within a few seconds. And in a couple of minutes, I had decided how much I could get, and for what price. I knew exactly the Leapster that we should get for Evangeline. And I did all of this really without thinking about it. It came very naturally to me. And I think that as Americans, we are very well trained in this art of consumerism. We are trained in the practices of cost-benefit analysis. We're very good at analyzing price and quality, about analyzing how much I can get for how little. We're very good at making a decision or whether or not something is a good buy for us. And there's nothing inherently wrong with this. In fact, it's very useful when you're on Amazon.com to be able to do that and to get a good buy. But I'm struck by how natural this comes to me now. These skills are in me. I do them without thinking about it. All of us do. And this may be good on Amazon.com, but we also tend to bring these attitudes and these skills into our relationships and into the church. We come to church as trained consumers. And if we're not careful, we begin to ask some of the same questions of the church as we do from our purchases. What will I get out of this church? How little is it going to cost me to get this thing that I need? 
friends, the church is not a place that provides religious goods and services to people. The church is intended to be a community of people that we commit our lives to. That we're willing to sacrifice time and energy for a group of people that we would even be willing to die for. In our passage in Colossians that we've been looking at, Colossians chapter 3, and I would encourage you to turn your Bibles with me. In this passage, Paul says that in the church that we are to put on love. That love is to be the defining marker for us as a community. And unfortunately, this word love is so watered down for us in our lives that it really sometimes doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. And I just want to say to you, what, here's how the Bible defines love in 1 John chapter 4. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us, and he gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Love, by God's definition, is sacrificial. It is about self-sacrifice. Love is not about a feeling that comes up within us when we see somebody that we like or that we appreciate or that can give some benefit to us. In fact, it's just the opposite in the Bible, that while we were sinners, God loved us and gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. When there was nothing good and nothing desirable about us, Jesus died for us. Love is not about our own self-interest, but about the interest of others. There is no true love without a willingness to sacrifice ourselves in some way for the one that we claim to love. Love and cost-benefit analysis, they don't go together. The scripture that we looked at last week talked about the danger um, of sin in the church and the way that this, at sin can tear down the community. Well, this passage today speaks more about uh, how we are called to be this particular kind of church. Once we, uh, can, once we continue to grow and to uh, be refined and sanctified so that sin is more and more less a part of our lives, Paul also gives some positive instructions here about who we are called to be as the church. Colossians 3, I'm going to start reading at verse 12, and I'm going to go through verse 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This scripture raises the bar to our commitment to one another in the church. 
It tells us that we are called to pursue the unity of the church, even at great cost to ourselves. The decision to be a part of the church, to be this kind of community that Paul describes here, that decision can't be made half-heartedly. It cannot be something that we enter into with only our own benefit in mind. The the church, the Christian community, is not a, a social club that we enter into and go out of as if it doesn't really matter. According to Christ's teachings in Colossians, our relationships with others in the church must be pursued and entered into with our whole hearts and with ultimate concern for the well-being of those brothers and sisters next to us as well as for the concern of the unity of the church. And so this morning, I want to talk specifically uh, about the way that we actively pursue the unity of the church. Uh, This sermon's going to be a little bit different this week um, in that I think I'm probably going to be doing a little bit more teaching than I am preaching. I just want to give some really practical instructions about how we pursue unity in the church. Verse 15a, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. In the church, the peace of Christ must rule. The peace of Christ must have authority in our church. And when Paul is talking here about peace, he's not just talking about inner tranquility in our hearts, just the peace of mind. He's talking about peace between one another. That this peace must rule in our church. And the Bible is very realistic about the church. The Bible never paints a picture as the church being a perfect place. I mean, just in the verses right above, in verse 13, bear with each other whatever grievances you may have with one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. These are instructions that are very honest and clear that the church isn't a perfect place. That grievances against one another are going to happen. That forgiveness is going to be required between us. We are not always, in fact, we're very rarely a group of very patient saints who always seek the benefit of those around us, right? We're very rarely that kind of people. We, we are a group of people who get angry with one another. We're a group of people who lose our patience with one another. We're a group of people who tend to gossip against one another. We're a group of people who do not always act as if we love one another. We're not a perfect place here at Broadway. That's because there's people here. (laughs) When you have a group of people, sin is present. And when sin is present, conflict is going to happen. There will be times when there's not peace. And the Bible is not naive about this. The church is never painted as this perfect place, even in the book of Acts, in that, that book where we always say, hey, let's look and see what the early church did. Well, they're having conflicts all over the place in the book of Acts. From the very beginning, they're trying to resolve conflicts with one another. Many of Paul's letters are written in order to figure out how the church should resolve conflicts together. Okay, This has been a part of the life of the church from the very beginning. The Bible is aware of the reality of conflict between Christians. And so the Bible doesn't expect our community to be a utopia, you know, where we all just kind of join hands and sing kumbaya all the time. And it's just this nice, peaceful place where we always want to be. That's not what the Bible says. We're not a perfect community. But what the Bible does expect of us is this, that we would love one another enough to handle our conflicts in a particular way. 
We're not always going to be perfect. We are going to have conflict with one another, but we must love one another enough to handle those conflicts in a particular way. Let the peace of Christ rule. So how do we do that? I think a good way to start is to back up and before we think about like what we should do if we're in conflict with another person is to really even think about our attitude and our mindset when we go into a conflict with another person. Um, I'm going to uh, pick on somebody, uh, probably somebody my own size. So um, we'll pick on, uh, pick on Tony. Where's Tony? I don't know where Tony is, so good. I can, there he is. Hey, Tony. <laughs> so I'm going to pick on Tony. Okay. So imagine that Tony and I are in a conflict with one another. And from the world's perspective, and I think too often the perspective that we have in the church, is that our conflict is primarily between me and Tony. And that either I'm going to win or Tony's going to win. And I'm going to lose or Tony's going to lose. And so we engage one another at that level. I'm going to convince him that I'm right or I'm going to somehow get something from him that I think he's stolen from me or whatever it might be. But from a biblical perspective, if that is the only level, the only playing field, the only plane in which we play on, both Tony and I are both going to lose the battle. Because Christians must understand that when Tony and I are in conflict with one another, that we're actually on the same side. And that we're fighting a battle not against one another, but against the sin that is in my heart and is in Tony's heart. Ephesians 6 says this, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, our conflict, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The conflict that is taking place between Tony and me on one level is just between him and I. But in the more important level, it's taking place in the spiritual world in which Satan wants to divide us and to divide the church. As the church, we're on the same team, fighting the same battle against Satan who is seeking to destroy the Christian community. And as long as we only fight the battles against one another, Satan will win. When conflicts comes in our relationships, both God and Satan are at work to bring about his purposes in it. Satan wants to use it to destroy us and to divide us. God wants to use it to make both of us become more like Christ. Conflict can be one more thing that God uses to make us more like Jesus. One more way for my heart to be refined and sanctified and more humble and more righteous and more honest and truthful. And so think for a moment about your life. There is likely someone who in this very moment you are in some conflict with. Someone that maybe you hold a grudge against or who you know holds a grudge against you. Imagine how your perspective on that conflict would change if you acknowledge where the real battle lies. If you acknowledge that your ultimate battle is not against that person, but against the sin in your own heart. How would that change the way you enter into a conversation with that person about your relationship? 
What would it look like for you in that relationship to allow the peace of Christ to rule over your relationship with that person? Jesus and the biblical writers offer us an interesting perspective on conflict that tells us that our battle isn't between the other person, but is a battle with sin. As we are in these conflicts, our goal at the end of the day must always be reconciliation and unity together. And so in the church, when we perceive that someone does something wrong to you, we can't simply write them off. Paul says that you are all part of one body. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as member of one body, you were called to peace. Amputation is not an option for you. Amputation is sometimes necessary, but you don't get to decide to do it all by yourself. And we'll talk in a few minutes about when certain steps, drastic steps even, are taken. But you as an individual don't get to decide to cut somebody off because they wrong you. You must pursue reconciliation and unity with the other person. And since unity is the goal, there's really only two possibilities when somebody does something wrong to you. When somebody says something about you or somebody does something to you, there are really only two possibilities. One of the possible choices is to approach that person and to talk to them about it. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I think there's another possibility as well. And that first possibility uh, comes out of this word, forbear. Forbear. The NIV just says bear with each other, but many translations say forbear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you have with one another. The book of Proverbs and the book of James both talk about being slow to anger and slow to take offense. And in the church, as you live in the Christian community, there is going to be someone who says something to you or does something to you that hurts you. And because of that, We need to be slow to anger and slow to take offense. To be slow to take offense is an essential part of the health of the Christian community. To be willing to forbear with someone's weakness or to forbear with someone's wrong is a sign even of Christian uh, maturity. The willingness to forgive and to move on and to not hold anything against that person who offended you is what the scriptures mean by forbear with one another. And this is not the same thing as holding a grudge. It's not the same thing as ignoring the other person or ignoring whatever feelings you have about them in your heart. Forbearing is the conscious decision to forgive that person in your heart and to be in a right relationship with that person. And so sometimes you're going to have relationships with people who hurt you, and you are going to be called to simply be slow to take offense and to forgive that person and to move on. But if someone offends you and you simply can't do that, if you can't forbear with that person, if you find that you continue to have bitterness in your heart, If you find that when you're walking down to the gym, you make sure that you're sitting on the other side of the gym as that person and that you're not going to eat their macaroni salad. When you find yourself in that situation with that person, 
you're not forbearing anymore. (laughs) It's not forbearance to just ignore it. And so if that's the case with you, if you continue to have bitterness in your heart and there's not real community and relationship between you and another person, then that's when a conversation is necessary. And it has to happen. And we are so slow to do this. But Jesus, Jesus gives us a very clear process for how to respond to individuals who sin against us, who offend us in some way, and who we can't forbear. We just simply can't forgive it and move on. And that comes in Matthew chapter 18. So turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 18. We hear what Jesus has to say about how we respond to someone who sins against us. Starts in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his faults just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If someone offends you and you simply can't forbear with that person, simply can't forgive that person and and move on and be in relationship with that person, then it's time to have a conversation with that person, just the two of you. You don't go and tell your friend. You don't go and tell Pastor Ryan. You don't gossip. The first step is to go to your brother or sister who has done you wrong and to tell them in love and in humility that they hurt you. The purpose is about unity. When we talk to someone else about what someone did to us, that unity is threatened because that person now has to take a side. They now have to form an opinion of the situation. So this first step is so wise, and of course it is because it comes from Jesus. This first step is so wise because it involves as few people as possible, and it protects the unity of the community. So the first step when someone sins against you and you can't simply forgive that person and move on is to approach that person with love and humility. And as you go to that person, you can't be seeking to win. (laughs) You must approach them with a concern for their well-being as well as for yours. You must approach your sister in Christ with a recognition that she is not your enemy. That both of you are trying to conquer this thing called sin that's a reality in us. Friends, I have taken this step dozens and dozens and dozens of times in my life. And I want to tell you that when it's done in love and in humility, when it's done in the spirit of seeking unity, it has almost always turned out to be a good and a beautiful thing. Often that person didn't know that they wronged me and were glad to hear about it. Often that we were able to have a good fight that you need to have in relationships with other people in order to make sure that it's right. 
The vast majority of time, this first step takes care of the, the issue. Now, there might still need, um, might still be work that needs to be done. You may not, you know, be best friends. But what happens is when that relationship happens in your own heart, and if the other person knows about the conflict, knows that there's a problem in your own hearts, it's no longer you versus them. It's now the two of you together versus something else. You come together and work on it together. Does that make sense? That's step number one. So somebody wrongs me, the first thing that I do is I go and I tell my friend, right? No. You go and you talk to that person about it, okay? You go and you talk to that person about it. That's the first step. But once again, Jesus is realistic, and he knows that sometimes that first step won't work. Sometimes a personal confrontation will not lead to repentance or to resolution or to reconciliation. And so he says, the second step is to bring two or three others along with you. And once again, in love and humility, bring your grievance before that person. Again, notice that part of this invitation is to involve as few people as possible. Because the more people that are involved in your conflict, the more possibility for division and unity. And notice that these people are going to be witnesses. These are not people who are your best friends who are going to stand on your side no matter what. These are people who are going to be witnesses to your conflict and to discern together what's going to happen. These two or three witnesses are to be present in order to be mediators with you in your conflict and to once again join together with you to battle the sin that's in your midst. The third step, if that doesn't work, Jesus says, take it before the church. And if this person still refuses to treat, uh, to refuses to repent or to desire reconciliation, then you treat that person as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is the amputation step. But notice, it's not a decision that an individual made. The body makes it together. Sometimes a person can be so belligerent about their sin and their offense that they're actually then doing damage to the whole church. And so if a person is brought before the whole community, is shown his sin, still refuses to repent, then it's obvious that this person doesn't know what it means to follow Jesus at all. And so Jesus says, treat them as you would a non-believer. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And this sounds really harsh, doesn't it? But just think about how Jesus treated pagans and tax collectors, <laughs> right? So even, even in this very drastic step, which I hope, I hope we never have to take as a church, even in this very drastic step, you still must love and care for that person in the way that Jesus cared for pagans and tax collectors. Brothers and sisters, there is much at stake when it comes to conflict in the church. And I don't think we realize how much is at stake. Look what Jesus continues to say in Matthew chapter 18. Verse 18. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Jesus here is talking about the importance 
of unity. And I think that in the North American church, we don't have a true and deep appreciation of the power that comes when the church is unified together. Christianity is kind of my own thing. It's primarily about me and my relationship with God. And church is that Christian community that I go to in order to be encouraged, to be instructed, to be taught about my individual relationship with God. The church certainly does all of that. But what Jesus says here is that the church is not primarily about you. It is about God's plans and purposes for the world. It is through the church that God binds and loosens, where he binds sin and also loosens, sets free his forgiveness and his justice and his righteousness in the world. It's through the church where that happens. It's the unity of the church that gives us the power to do what we're called to do as the church. Our unity is not a small thing. It's what gives us the power to be who God has called us to be. Paul continues in Colossians 3. He just stops with this one sentence, and be thankful. And I think what he's saying here is be thankful for one another. He's going to tell us in a couple verses later to be thankful to Jesus and to God. But I think here he's saying be thankful for one another. Part of our unity together is appreciating our strangeness and our quirks and our diversity of gifts and our diversity of passions Recognizing that some people have a passion for things that I just don't understand. But as they bring those things in submission to the gospel, can do good kingdom work in the world. Some people have skills that I just simply do not understand. On Friday, the entire day I was preparing my sermon, right out this window, our brother Randy was working on the back of the Rock Hill building, and I just, I don't even know where I would start doing the work that he's doing. I found myself being grateful for him and what he was doing. Be thankful because I have no idea how to do what he does. I have no idea how to do what Andrew does. I have no idea how to do what the others of you do and are called to do and are passionate about. And so Paul says, and be thankful because part of the strength of your unity is appreciating the diversity that God has uh, given to the church. Be thankful for one another. Celebrate one another's victories. To believe that we're not competing one ministry over another here in the church. We are one body, and so we celebrate together like we did last Sunday when there are victories in the church. We celebrate together and we rejoice together as one body. Be thankful for one another. Verse 16. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your body, in your hearts, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. What Paul is saying here is that the good news of Jesus, the teachings that all of us are seeking to follow, we all need one another to speak those words to each other because we forget them too easily. And it's not only for pastors and teachers and elders to speak the word of God to the people of God. It requires each of us to speak the word of God to one another. To remind one another of who God is and who he has made you to be as his children, as people for whom Christ died. 
To be reminded in times when we are grieving that we are cared for and loved by the church and by God. To remember that when we're going through a time of crisis that God is there present with us. We need one another to speak God's word to us and to remind us of who God is and of who we are. As the church, we need places, safe places where we confess our sin. I talked about this last week of the importance of confession. We can't all, and we shouldn't all, just stand up here on this platform and confess all of our deepest and darkest sins to one another. But in the church, there can be smaller people, places of people who we know and who we can trust, who we can say, this is who I am. In a way to be naked and unashamed, (laughs) here's who I am. And in that relationship, to have a person who is going to speak God's word of forgiveness to us. To remind us that we are forgiven in Christ. To also be a voice of challenging us to repent and to turn from that sin. And Paul says this interesting thing, that we do all of this while we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Our music is important. We know that here at Broadway. We love our music, but think about how important it was in Paul's day. Most of them couldn't read. And so the songs that they sang was the word of God to them. It was their instruction that they would remember throughout the week. And it's important for us to, uh, how often on a Thursday do you find yourself singing a song that you sang Sunday that you hadn't thought about in three or four days? The ways that God has given us the gift of music as something that stays with us and shapes our hearts and shapes our minds. And finally, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is not about ourselves. Doing all this and experiencing the unity of the church is not about Broadway. It's not about us being able to say how great Broadway is. All of this unity is so that we can say how great Jesus is. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. God in heaven, we, we need your help to do any of the things that are asked of us and commanded of us in Scripture. And we need your help as the church to love one another enough to respond to our conflicts in this particular way that you've given to us. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we've written people off. Forgive us for the ways that we've ignored those who have hurt us. Lord, I pray that we would be diligent in our willingness to pursue unity. Remind us, Lord, that we are people who have been forgiven of a great debt that we could never repay. Lord, out of that understanding and knowledge and appreciation of what you have done for us, Lord, make us a people who are willing to forgive others for what they have done. 
Again, we ask for your help to do this so that you can make us the community here at Broadway that you're calling us to be. That you would strengthen our our bonds of commitment and love to one another so that we can trust one another in all things. And so, Lord, that we can see your binding and loosening happening in your world. We ask these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.